Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Welcome to Parenting Great Kids. This is episode number 166, and I'm your host, Dr. Meg Meeker. Today, we're going to be talking with one of my favorite authors and pastor, Max Lucado, about one of the most famous lines in the Bible, John chapter 316. Many of you know the verse. Maybe you've seen it hanging up on a banner at a football game or a baseball game or in an auditorium where there's a concert. But many of us never really stop and think about what that passage really means. Well, we're going to talk with Max about that today, and we're going to address the hard questions. Does God really love us all the time, or does he ignore us sometimes? What does going to heaven mean, and who gets there? It's a discussion that will challenge those who believe in God and those who don't. Friends, I'm also excited to announce today that my Strong Father, Strong Daughters Masterclass is being launched. Our team has worked for months to get this simple but profound message to every father out there that they are critical to the emotional, physical, and spiritual growth of their daughters. Friends, we need to encourage and uplift fathers like never before. Our prisons are filled with fathers who feel like throwaways. And we need to get our fathers back to turn our country around. I wrote the masterclass in response to thousands of fathers who read my Strong Father, Strong Daughters book and asked me, well, I get how important I am to my daughter, but what do I do? do now? What do I do to meet her needs? Well, the masterclass answers these questions by giving dads very specific things they can do to grow closer to their daughters. Check it out, meekerparenting.com slash strong. Well, let's get to our interview with Max Lucado. Max is a pastor, speaker, and best-selling author of more than 145 million products in print that have been translated into 45 languages and distributed in 80 countries worldwide. This man has had an enormous impact globally. As a writer, Max is known for combining poetic storytelling and homespun humor with the heart of a pastor. He's been dubbed America's pastor by Christianity Today and the best preacher in America by Reader's Digest. That tells you something. Max currently serves as teaching minister of Oak Hills Church in San Antonio, Texas. All right, let's get to my interview now with Max Lucado on this edition of Parenting Great Kids. Well, Max, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. I am going to love this interview. Well, it's my honor. Hello from one side of the U.S. to the other, right? From deep <laughs> south right. Texas. We're the last big city before you get to Mexico. And hello to Michigan. So our greetings to, to you. Right. I'm yeah. freezing and you're sweating. And then that's all good. That's, you know what? I yeah. think we're 65 today and there will be people who will complain that it's <laughs> The sweater weather at 65. I'm not kidding. There are people down here who complain. They nope. don't want anything lower than 90. That's pretty funny. Well, nobody, they would not survive <laughs> up where I live because we've got lots of snow and a lots of freezing cold weather. But I've been dying to talk to you about your book, 316, The Numbers of Hope. You know, Max, for those who know anything about the Bible, even just a little bit, John 316 
is a passage that's so familiar that it just kind of rolls off our tongue and we don't even think about what it means. Now, you published the original John or 316, The Numbers of Hope, back in 2007, was it? Yeah, this is a relaunch of that book. Uh, mm-hmm. we've, we've added some chapters. Uh, we've added some elements to it, like a study guide in the back. But it is a, it is a relaunch or re-release of, of 316. Yeah. And I think you're right. I, th- I think John 316 is a verse that a lot of people are so acquainted with that they've never really pondered. I love 316, number one, because I'm an old converted drunk. I'm, I'm a redeemed bum. I'm, I'm serious. I was just a mess when God got a hold of me. And uh, I have always treasured John 316 because it says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And I'm a whoever. I'm a whoever. I come right out of that. I'm, I'm a mongrel. I'm a mixed breed. I don't have any you know, pure blood, blue blood in me at all. I was a mess, but I could be a whoever. And that, mm-hmm. that message really uh, saved me. It did. Yeah. And so uh, I've cherished the 316 message for that reason. I love that talking about the whoever. And I was going to ask you about that about halfway through the interview, but I'm going to ask you right now because you've brought it up. Who does that whoever refer to for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish. Who are those whoever's? Are those people that mm. know Christ? Are those people that don't know him? Is it the whole world? Tell us who whoever's are. There is no uh, restriction on God's whoever policy. I mean, there's just not. You know, uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, uh, came across uh, the fact that he called John 3.16 his life first. Mm. And he also loved the word whoever. Because he said, for God so loved the world. He said this. He said, if God had said, for God so loved the world that whatever John Newton believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He said, I would have believed there's another John Newton somewhere. And that verse was written for them. For him. But since God said, whoever believes in him, I'm a whoever. And so I'm going to believe in him. And that became his life first. And I relate to that. So I, I think I think the the doorway to God's kingdom is open for whoever. And the doorway for God's hing- kingdom is open, not just for whoever, but also for whenever. Uh, if it's mm-hmm. the last breath of life, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I, I tell the story about uh, talking to my uncle who was just like my dad. And I went and visited with him. And it literally in the last minutes of his life, he said mm. yes to Christ. Mm. And I love that story. It's kind of like the thief mm. on the cross, you know, right. uh, it, the thief on the cross cried out to Christ with what was close to, if not thee, his dying, his dying breath. He said, could you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, you better believe it. Yeah, yeah come in. I've, I, I, so whoever, whoever means whenever, whoever means however. Uh, you know, if you're covered in the mud of the prodigal son's uh, pig pen, however mm-hmm. God finds you, he'll He'll take you and he'll take you forever. So it's just such a beautiful, all-encompassing, all-inviting promise that God gives through John 3.16. You know, and I think that Christianity is the only faith where you have that invitation, where God will take you whoever, whenever. 
I can't think of any other faith. There's so many restrictions and so many uh, things, hoops you have to jump through in order to get into that faith or believe or be involved or whatever. But the thing that's so remarkable about Christianity is that God's heart is so big we can't even begin to fathom. And, and yet he gives that open love invitation to everyone that it's a mystery. I mean, the older I get, the harder time I have understanding because I just can't understand. We can never understand God's love. Let's jump into looking at the word believes, that whoever believes in him or on him, what does that belief mean? Because I've heard a lot of different explanations of what the word means or should mean. Yeah. Well, the one that works best for me is a story about a missionary uh, by the name of John Patton to the New Ebrides Islands. He was a translator, and uh, he was looking for the right word to translate into the language of the islanders, believe. Mm. And he went on a hunt. Uh, This is back in the 1800s. He went on a hunt with a man who was raised on the islands. They bagged uh, their hunt and they were carrying a deer uh, across the island, very heavy. And they finally reached the missionary house and uh, they lowered the animal and the, the islander went to a hammock and he lowered himself down in the hammock. He said, I'm so tired. I'm going to stretch myself out and rest on your hammock. So all that phrase, stretch myself out and rest, was articulated with one word, one verb. And so the missionary said, tell me that again. And that became the word that John Hatton used for uh, belief, stretch myself out and rest. That works for me. You know, God so loved the world that whoever stretches themselves out and rests in Jesus Christ mm-hmm. shall not perish, but have eternal life. I think it's more than just a mental acquiescence, more just an intellectual acknowledgement, but it's really a dependence. I'm mm-hmm. going to quit trying to save myself, quit trying to be good enough, but I'm going to stretch myself out completely and rest in the goodness of God. That's such a beautiful visual. And I love hearing that because that really makes sense. Because so many times, you know, you have this one, two, three evangelism, think this, say this, you know, and then you're ready to go and you're going to jump into heaven. And it just has always bothered me. And yet you have the other side that says, if you don't understand really what believing is, you don't believe the right way, then it's all null and void. (laughs) And that always confused me because I I, I get that. Yeah, it's none of that. Um, So you said you talk about a lot of very personal parts of your life story uh, in the book. Would you be willing to share some of that and why this verse has, well, you just talked about a little bit, but why this verse means so much to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm an open book. I don't have anything to hide. (laughs) I I prayed as I was in, uh, my daughters were, as you know, one of my daughters very well. I have three daughters. And I prayed that they would not meet a Max Licato version of, uh, or the Max Licato version of me when they were in college. <laughs> Meg, I was a mess. I really was. I was a. You know, it's so interesting for me to hear that because you're the antithesis of that, right? You're the most hopeful, 
upbeat, authentic Christian, I think, that I've ever known. And and so that's hard to believe, but I don't want to interrupt you. So go ahead, college life. Well, maybe maybe it makes sense because I, I know so well what I am without God. I, I know what I am without God. I think I would have become an alcoholic. My brother became an alcoholic and battled it all of his life. Uh, come from a long line of uh, people who battle, battled alcoholism. I was not respectful of women. I was not respectful of authority. I tended to get in a lot of fights or arguments. I was big, a big self-promoter. I was kind of all about me. Uh, so I, I don't know where, if I would have ended up as an alcoholic or in prison or broke or all three. I don't know. I, I, but I know I, I was headed in the wrong direction. And uh, my question about God was not, is there a God? My question about God was, could God forgive someone like me? And uh, so when I was preparing to go to college, my dad said, I wanted to go, Meg, to the University of Texas because I was raised in Texas and all my friends were going to UT. But my dad knew if I went there, I'd not change peer groups and I'd be, Mm. you know, at least he felt like I needed help. So he said, if you'll go to this small liberal arts school in West Texas called Abilene Christian University, uh, I will pay the tuition. And he said that because they require uh, Bible courses to graduate and daily chapel services. So I'm not, I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. And <laughs> if he said he'd pay the tuition, you go. I said, okay, I'll go. So I did. And little by little, uh, through those classes, through chapel, through meeting Christian friends, uh, the Lord changed my heart. It took two years. It took two years. Uh, but it, it, at the end of my second year is when I came home. I, I really am grateful to be a whoever who was rescued by God's grace. Mm-hmm. When you went off to college, did you believe in God? Yeah, did you? I did. Okay. You did. I did. I did. I did. And I, and I had made a, a, a profession of faith as a child. And, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, I just had made such a mess of my life and was such, that was the other part. I was such a hypocrite because I would try, I could act Christian when I needed to. So I was Mm -hmm. the worst kind of Christian. I was the Christian who uh, would had one life that was his real life, but then had the fake life. I could talk the Christian lingo when I needed to. So I was doubly nauseated. I wasn't even honest about being a jerk. I was trying to pretend I wasn't a jerk. (laughs) So at what point after college, because you you live 180 degrees opposite that now, how did the transformation of your character and your um, goals in life, how and when did that shift? Well, I believe that the working of the Holy Spirit began uh, even as a child, because I've always loved to write, mm-hmm. uh, even all my life, I've loved to write. And so when I returned to Christ as a sophomore in college, uh, I decided I'd like to be a missionary. Mm-hmm. And soon thereafter, found that to get to be a missionary, I had to go to seminary. When I was in seminary, I found that you had to do a lot of writing. Uh, and I liked that. Every, all the other students complained at, this, at the number of amount of writing we had to do. But I loved that part. 
And so by the time I got to Brazil, I had done a lot. I became a missionary, signed up for Brazil, got to Brazil, and I took all of that writing that I had done in seminary and also in a church where I had worked for two years. Mm -hmm. And I decided that I wanted to uh, turn those into books. Was this the question you asked me, or did I go down a different track? No, this is it. I asked you about the transformation of the path you were on. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I, I decided I wanted to be a missionary. I thought I'd spend my life in Brazil. But after I got into Brazil, I, I started writing, and I found that I could get published. And so one book led to a second, led to a third. Mm -hmm. And then my father was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And so I wanted to, I found it difficult to write in Brazil because I was doing Portuguese half the day and writing half the day. And then also my mom was alone because my dad passed away. So those two things came together and I said, maybe I could get a church. I've never been a pastor, but I found a church in South Texas here in San Antonio looking for a pastor. And I sent them my resume and they gave me a chance and I've been here ever since. And so moved to San Antonio in 1988 and Mm -hmm. I uh, I kept writing, kept preaching. And uh, my daughters were, the two of the three daughters were born in Brazil. One of them was born in San Antonio, and we've spent our life here. Wow. And you've been with the same church for since 1988. That's remarkable. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that is amazing. So why did you, so you decided to write the book, um, John 316, because that passage in particular meant so much yeah. to you. Are there other passages in scripture that meant a lot to you as well a- along that yeah. that path? Two others in particular, and they're all beloved scriptures. One is the 23rd Psalm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, that, that became a book called Traveling Light. And uh, I, I love the 23rd Psalm. And then I've also found a lot of comfort in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. And the heart of that passage says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition. Let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving. So that became a book called Anxious for Nothing. So those are uh, are two other uh, passages that have meant so much to me through the years that I, I, I also turned those into books. That's a tough piece of scripture because... For years and years, I've tried to grab on and grab on and grab on. Be anxious for nothing. Okay, okay. Be anxious for nothing. I mean, it's a command, but it's so hard to do. And particularly, I think of people listening now. Anxiety is everywhere, particularly since the COVID. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just takes a lot to allow that piece of scripture to absorb and so that you don't feel so anxious. But it's a, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. So when you read that, are you at the point where it really releases your anxiety? If you're anxious about something, you stop and you think of the scripture and your anxiety goes away. Yeah. If we're not careful, we can be anxious about being anxious, right? <laughs> we <laughs> exactly. can say, oh, I'm anxious. So, so Paul said, be anxious for nothing. So I think a couple of things along that line, uh, the, the, uh, Sometimes, every so not as many times as a lot of we times we preachers think, but there are those occasions when knowing Greek helps. Mm-hmm. And so this one is one of those occasions that 
scriptures written in a tense that could be translated, don't allow yourself to be in a perpetual state of anxiety. Mm-hmm. So anxiety comes with life, Meg. We know that. Yeah. It does. You're anxious. I'm anxious. But don't let it dominate your life. Uh, learn to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, manage your anxiety. And I think that's what that passage is about. It begins with uh, rejoice in the Lord always. So we, we celebrate God's power. We, we learn to release our anxieties to him. We replace our anxiety with gratitude, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with thanksgiving. And then we begin to meditate on good things. That's what the last passage in that scripture, Paul gives uh, nine different things, whatever's trustworthy, whatever is pure, whatever's lovely, what, he lives nine different virtues to, that we should meditate on. So it's a real practical passage. And you're right, today with anxiety going out the rooftops, more people are battling anxiety than ever before. That passage from the Apostle Paul is, is super, super helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, it is. And I love the way you describe it because it doesn't mean you're going to abolish all anxiety in the moment. Not you're just bit. going to Not be able to, to deal with it in that moment and say, you know what, God's yeah. got this. So Absolutely. I don't have to worry. Let, let him worry about it. I can't tell you how many times I feel like I've let, let you worry about it, God. You know, there's a lot of beautiful depth to this book, a, but a, a lot of very profound theological questions that I think people need answered. And that's why they need to read the book. But a lot of the discussion people ha- have is, you know, can you really only get to heaven through Jesus? And you know, you, you think of people in, you know, other countries, Muslim faiths, you know, Hindu, whatever, um, who don't necessarily believe in Jesus. Why is it that we have to go through Jesus and how do we do that in order to get to heaven? Okay. Well, can we widen the lens just a bit and, and remember that the big privilege of life is to say yes or no to the great invitation of God. And that is the grandest invitation. Are we going to spend forever with him or forever away from him? Uh, I know that even that comment would trigger some concern in some people. That's the big idea of scripture is that God is giving us an opportunity. Now, the problem with heaven is that heaven is a perfect place and I'm anything but. So what Mm -hmm. do I do? Well, the scripture solution to that is God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's an important phrase in John 3.16. It, it comes from that beautiful Greek term, monogenes, only genetic. Uh, you're a physician by background. You understand that if something is, if we, if we carry the genetic makeup of our parents, uh, we bear their nature within us. Jesus is presented in scripture as the only begotten son or the one and only son. He bore the genetic makeup of God. He could say, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Now there's the fish and cut bait statement right there. The the big statement of Jesus is, do I believe what he said about him? What he said about himself? He, He presented himself as the one and only son of God. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Now, why is that? That's important. Because what I need to go to heaven is someone who can handle my imperfections. Every other religion in the history of the world has said, do this and you might be saved. Christianity is absolutely unique because as purely postured as it should be, Christianity 
says, Jesus says, do this and I'll save you. I'll save you because he is the one and only son. So God's invitation to us is I'm creating a new universe. I'm creating a new world. I'm creating a new society. I am going to have my garden of Eden. I will have what I intended to have that got disrupted by the rebellion of mankind. And I want you to be a part of it. I want you, I want you, I want you, I want you, wherever you are, I want you to be a part of it. But I love you, so I won't force you. But I'm just, so I must punish sin. So I'm going to place all your rebellion on my one and only son. I'm going to place it on him like mud. I'm going to place it on him like a criminal sentence, like like somebody who's been sentenced for a criminal act. And I'm going to declare him guilty. And I'm going to punish him, not for what he has done, but for what you have done. And I'm going to trade places. And I'm going to give you the righteousness of my son. Wow, what an offer. That's what caught my heart when I was 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And that's why the one and only uniqueness of Jesus is, is not put offish. It's just a fact. It's just a fact. Yeah. God says, I have to have somebody who dies, who pays this price. Mohammed didn't do that. Joseph Smith didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hindu faith, God bless them. They don't, they don't, they don't have that. It's mm-hmm. unique to the Christian gospel. Now, I believe this invitation is sent through a million ways, a million mm-hmm. ways all over the world, through sunsets, through uh, waves slapping on the beach, many times through the Bible, sometimes through the kindness of others. I do not believe God will hold anybody accountable for what he has not told them. He is revealing this every day through a million invitations. Now, there are going to be people who rebel against it forever and ever and ever. And in that day, when they say, God, I don't want you anything to do with you, at some point, God will say, I will honor your request. But there, heaven will be populated by people who not even heard the name of Jesus, Meg. They just know the kindness of God, the goodness of God. And they know that anybody who can create this universe must be a good and loving God. I'm going to depend on him. And so that's at least that's how I deal with some of these difficult questions of people who've never even heard the name of Christ. But yes, salvation comes through him. And that's what matters in the end. Parents, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Max Lucado as much as I am. We need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more of my conversation. Welcome back to Parenting Great Kids. My guest is Max Lucado. So God could bring a person to salvation through Christ by what he does without the person actually knowing it? If they'd never heard Jesus's name, <laughs> I believe I believe that our yeah. God uh, is so surprising in His grace that when He looks down and He sees that, you know, I ministered in the Amazon when I was in Brazil. I know there are jungles we have yet to find. There are people, there are tribal groups for whom we you do not even have a translation. I want to get a translation to them because life is so much better if they know who Jesus is. But there are many people who will be saved because they cast themselves upon the goodness of God. They did not know goodness is pronounced Jesus, but they cast themselves upon the goodness of God as much as they knew, as much as as to whom God had revealed yet. Our God is not cruel. 
He's not mm -hmm. capricious. He's not playing tricks with people. He's not mm -hmm. saying, oh, you happen to be born in the wrong place in the wrong generation. You're not getting that inconsistent with the nature of our good and loving God. And so I, I find I find great hope in the fact that God loves these people, whoever believes in him, mm -hmm. and that whoever could be a per, that Native Indian, Native American who who cast himself upon that whoever made those stars in the sky did so in such an orderly and beautiful fashion. I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe in that God. Well, this is why I love to read what you've written. Everything you write is filled with grace and hope and Christ is hope. And it seems to me that so many people going into church and Christianity have no hope. And, and that a passage like, you know, whoever comes, if you want to see the Father, you have to come through me, uses that passage as a way to exclude people rather than to include people. Um, because that's a stumbling block for a lot of people who don't profess Christianity. They say, well, wait a minute, I just don't believe that the only way you can get to God is that way. And then a lot of Christians go, well, 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 but you have to, you have to do this and this and this with Jesus or you're out. And that's bizarre, I, I think. So I love the way you describe God and Christ in this very different way. It's so refreshing, but it's so filled with hope. And that comes through everything you write, which, by the way, one of my favorite books of all time is Where Did My Giggle Go? <laughs> you wrote, I, <laughs> as an adult, I love to. Be, Max wrote a book called "Where Did My Giggle Go?" and we read it to our grandkids. But I read it for me. So anyway, I'm I'm getting off track a little bit, but that hopeful spirit um, and attitude comes through everything that you write. We need hope, don't we? We oh, do. We do. There, we need if hope. There's ever time hope, be, yeah, because everybody, whether yeah. you have a faith or whether you don't, really believes we're doomed. I don't believe we're doomed, yeah, but everybody, yeah. you know, this is it. This is it. I know. I'm I'm a bit concerned because many people, it seems to me that there are many people who, when you say, uh, who is a Christian, they would say, oh, that, that's a person of a particular political party. Right. Or that's a person of a particular sociological viewpoint. And that a Christian is not that. A Christian is a person who loves John 3.16, who loves that God loves the world, who loves that they are willing to believe that they themselves are a sinner in need of a Savior, and they found one in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, we have different opinions. We have different backgrounds. We have different viewpoints. But that's the core right there, mm -hmm. and that's what matters most. It is, and it's so simple, but we won't allow it to be so simple. Um, yeah. We only have a couple of minutes left. Can you talk about heaven and hell in two minutes? I uh, I know uh, that that the topic of hell is a difficult topic. I get that, and consequently, it's not discussed much anymore. There was a professor at the University of Chicago named Martin Marty. He's passed away now, but in his research before he died, he researched uh, sermons over the last uh, several decades and came to the conclusion that hell left the church and no one noticed because so few preachers were preaching about hell. Mm -hmm. I understand that uh, hell has been uh, used to beat people, to frighten people, 
but I do believe we need to have an honest uh, understanding of what the Bible says about hell. Now, disagree with it if you want to. But here's here it is from what I can understand. God has offered this grand invitation, this grand invitation that he's redeeming the world and he wants you, he wants me to be a part of it. And that includes redeemed society, redeemed people, redeemed cultures, more beauty than we can ever imagine forever in bodies that will never go weary, minds that will never go tired. Everything about we've ever longed for will be there. But the fact of the matter is there are many people who even hearing that say, no, God, leave me alone. Just leave me alone. Leave me alone. I want to lead life the way I want it. I don't want to admit I'm a sinner. I don't want to admit, admit I'm a sa- I need a savior. I don't even want to admit you're there. Just leave me alone. Since God is a God of love and justice, he must honor that request. He must honor that request. Hey, if people come in and, and, and destroy tribes, wipe out cultures by their blood, th- and all their lives are saying, I'm, I'm going to do what I want. Do we really want a God who will say, okay, I'm going to pretend you never did that? No, we don't want that. Mm-mm. So hell is not the place for those who struggle and stumble. Hell is a place for those who rebel and succeed. Hell is a place for those who spend all of their life saying, leave me alone. And on the day, the great day, the day, there will be a day of judgment. And on that day, God says, okay, I will. I will. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying, I believe that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. And I believe what he's saying is there is that people who choose to spend forever away from God do so by their own volition. Mm-hmm. Now, as to the nature of hell, is it forever? Is it momentary? Is it annihilation? Is it eternity? That's another conversation, you mm-hmm. know. But I do believe that there is a point in which people who spend their life saying, God, leave me alone, will have that wish uh, acknowledged. And as painful as that thought might be, I would not want a God who who would not honor that request. So, yeah, it's not a happy topic. And anyone yeah. who makes it a happy topic doesn't get it doesn't get it. Exactly. Yeah, but I love your explanation. Again, it's so simple. And um, it's a perspective that I've never really, really thought about because we think of hell and we think of this place. I know what it, in my mind what I have it looking like. And I'm like, you're right, that, that's not reality. But I really appreciate I really appreciate your uh, perspective there. Um, you have a question for me. And I do. You, I do. OK. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> well, you have Ask this me. unique assignment, this unique assignment in which you help all of us be better parents and help us understand children and families. But I've never quite connected, seen how that connected with your training, because are you not a medical doctor? I'm a pediatrician. I'm an MD, correct. A pediatrician. MD, yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. So how did one lead to where you are today? Well, when I went to do my residency training, you know, after medical school, my husband and I were married and we went to Milwaukee and I really gave my life to the Lord then saying, I've never heard this before. Nobody's ever shown me how I follow you and chase after you. And 
love you. And and so I started down that path with my husband. And I think that took a, just a very different shape in how I saw my work. Um, I went, you know, the first year of my residency, I, I saw it as sort of a fun, intense thing to do. But by the time I finished it after three and a half years, I really realized it was a calling. It was a you know, it was the sense that I will take you with your training and I will do with you what I will. And I didn't know what that was going to look like. And so, you know, my husband and I own our own practice and we started practicing. And I began speaking out against the sexualization of kids in the 90s. And it really upset me. And I literally was giving a, a, a lecture and there happened to be, well, there happened to be an acquisition editor from a publisher sitting in the audience saying, is this what you're saying about kids and the problems they're having because of what our culture's doing to them by sexualizing them? And I said, absolutely. And so then I had a book and, and then that kind of, you know, became very popular and, and overnight I was sort of thrown into a national spotlight talking about kids and sexuality and so on and so forth. And it just kept growing from there, but I never, ever thought I would write a book when I was a resident or I didn't ask for it. It just happened. And that's why we were talking off air about landing in these places where God has thrown that you think, how in the world would I ever get here? For instance, um, after that, after years, I've written seven books now, I ended up working with the NFL. And I thought, no, this makes no sense. You know, I'm a middle-aged grandmother. <laughs> People like me who don't even understand football don't do this. And so, you know, but but these lovely men wanted so badly to be better dads. And I understood kids. So I could say, here's what your kids are thinking about you. Here's how your kids see you. And so what I really wanted to do is, it, you know, God just sort of showed me, you can speak on behalf of kids to their parents because your job as a pediatrician slash missionary, if you will, is to strengthen that bond between kids and their parents. Now, you can't really get there by telling kids what to do because they probably won't listen to you, but maybe their parents will. So I, I tell parents kind of what their kids think about and what they want from them. And I have found that if you open a parent's eyes to the mind and heart of their kids, it melts their heart. And they think, how did I miss mm. this? How did I see that? Because I said, because you're looking at your child through your lens, not through your, your child's lens. So to me, that's really how it all played out. But I will say, and I've done a lot, a lot of speaking and to some pretty large audiences and people say, well, how do you do that? I said, you know, here's the thing. Believe me or not believe me, no matter how many people are in the crowd, the moment I walk on a stage, it's me and Christ. It's all who's there. It, that's it. And it's mm. deeply, deeply personal. It is a a, a mission field. Um, and that's kind of how I ended up where I am right now. And um, it's been quite a journey, but you just have to be open to go wherever because you just don't know where you're going to land. You know, I working with Dave Ramsey, he's a, he's a money guy. And I thought, but you're a money guy and I'm a pediatrician. We don't fit together here, but God <laughs> so you just do it. You know, it's 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 really remarkable. It, it, it sort of leaves me um, looking up at God quizzically. But I know God well enough to never say no if he asks you to do something. So 
Yeah. Well, good for you. Good yeah. for you. But he's so good. He is so good. And, you know, and God, God gives children parents. And, and I just want to help parents understand who they are, particularly fathers. I, I wrote a book on fathers and daughters to help dads see, you know, you, you are the first representation of God to your children. Mm. Do you know mm. that? And if your kids have a hard time with you, dad, what are they going to do with God the father? There you go. They're going to have a heart. So even things like that, dads are, wow, I never thought about that. So anyway. Yeah. Well, way to go, Meg. Good work. Well, well thank you. Good I've work. I've long admired what you do and you inspire me. So I, I, you know, I thought, and you've encouraged, been such an encouragement to me as I've read your work through the years, because as I say, you, you really give people so much hope to just keep moving forward and another day and another day and that Christ will be there holding your hand. So I thank you for that and all the wonderful work you've done. Thank you. Well, it's my honor, and I hope we get to talk again sometime. I hope we do, too, because I have a lot more questions to ask you about your book. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, my guest has been uh, Max Licato. Uh, there's no other like Max, and I strongly recommend that everybody read 316 because it's really, really remarkable. So, Max, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, and all the very best, and have a great, great day. Thank you. Well, friends, I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Max Licato. Check out any of his books, but particularly his latest book, 316, The Numbers of Hope. No matter how many times you've read John 316, you will gain fresh insight in his brand new book, The Numbers of Hope. Okay, let's go over my points to ponder. One, God will never stop loving you. In a world where we all feel that we need to be better and better to get a loved one's approval or love, we need to know deep in our hearts that God's love will never go away. Everyone needs truly unconditional love, and it's only in God that we find this. Two, God accepts you just as you are today. God doesn't need you to change in order for him to love you. Many say that God will love you once you stop being bad, behave the way he wants you to, or start studying the Bible. And that's not true. The woman at the well had slept with numerous men and Jesus simply came to her one day when she was getting water for her family and declared his love for her. Three, God teaches us not to be afraid. Today, there are terrifying realities. Kids getting shot in school, the economy collapsing, terrorists plotting to kill those who disagree with them. The list goes on and on. In the midst of the horrors, God tells us not to be afraid. He has all of this covered. I want to thank my guest, Max Licato, for joining me on the show today. Make sure to check out his latest book, 316. The Numbers of Hope. You can find out more about Max when you go to maxlucato.com and be sure to follow him on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Just search for Max Lucato in your internet browser. Now let's recap my three points to ponder. One, God will never stop loving you. Two, God accepts you the way you are today. And three, God teaches us not 
to be afraid. Remember, check out meekerparenting.com slash strong to help the father in your life, whether it's your own dad, your husband, or the father of your kids who need a fresh look at how important he is to your daughter. Go to meekerparenting.com slash strong. You will love it. So until next time, parents, always remember that great kids are raised, not born. Many of you know that a while back, I wrote a book called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, and it became an international bestseller. Well, I believe that this stemmed from the fact that I revealed a daughter's heart for her dad. It showed every dad what his daughter needs from him. Well, since then, many fathers have written to me and said, well, okay, the book explained what my daughter needs from me, but now what do I do? do to meet those needs. They wanted very specific steps they could take that would grow them closer to their daughters. Well, I am thrilled to say that now I'm giving dad those answers in my brand new hot off the press, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters Masterclass. Even if you haven't read the book, the masterclass shows you exactly what you can do to be the dad your daughter needs you to be. And the course is for every dad, whether your daughter is seven or 47, whether you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or unemployed, it doesn't matter. If you have a daughter, you must take this masterclass. She needs you to. It's made up of 10 different modules covering every topic a father and daughter relationship faces. You can listen to it like a podcast or you can watch it and you don't have to watch it all at once. You can watch it for 10 minutes a day or 30. It doesn't matter. Whatever time you have, I promise this might be some of the most important and valuable time you've ever spent. To celebrate the launch of this masterclass, we're giving you $30 off. Go to meekerparenting.com slash strong to get your discount. Plus, I'm excited to announce that you'll not only get the $30 discount, you'll also get a special bonus. In June, I'll be doing live chats with other dads you'll be able to join. You can ask any question about the course or whatever you want. Go to meekerparenting.com slash strong for more info. Your daughter will thank you for it.